Hello and welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Uh, it's a bit hot here in New Zealand. Um, uh, today I am joined by, he is a good friend, he was a former member of my Vistage Mastermind group. For me, one of the most uh, enigmatic, one of the best networkers that I have ever come across, Mr. Stephen Brown. Welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much, Adam. I, I wish it was 28 degrees here as well, but uh, it's February in England, so lucky if it's four, I think. <laughs> so just uh, tell the audience, uh, who are you and what do you do? Okay, well, thanks, Adam. I run a company called Euro Projects Recruitment. We started out as an engineering consultancy. I'm going back sort of um, 30, 35 years ago. 25 years ago, as an employee of that business, um, we recognised that there was a, a shortage of engineers and an even bigger shortage of recruitment expertise to help companies find those engineers for them. So I stepped outside of that organisation and started what has become today Euro Projects Recruitment. We specialise in high-end technical, technology, executive and commercial positions, um, mainly for the engineering and manufacturing sectors. So today's podcast, I really want to focus on two specific things. One is obviously around recruitment. I mean, there's been a, there's a huge amount of change going on globally, and I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts and insights on that, because I know how well-read you are, but also uh, the companies that you come across and the trends that you see. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is about, about culture. Uh, one of the things uh, through my time of working with you is that your investment, both from a monetary perspective, but also from a time perspective in, in the culture of your business, for me, is one of the reasons why uh, you're successful. So, uh, And I'm sure we'll cover lots of different things. Let's start with um, with recruitment, because you've been in the game now you know, nearly 30 years. What's the biggest thing that you've seen change over that period? And what's the one thing that has stayed constant throughout? Well, I think more has stayed constant than has changed, believe it or not. In, in the age of technology, it's still about people. It's still about finding the right match. You mentioned culture. I think one of the things that stood us apart from day one when we set up the recruitment business was not to just try and find a technical match for the person that was going into the job, but to find the values, the culture, the personality match so that there was a long-term relationship where you got the best out of the person that you were hiring and they got the best out of you as an employer. Uh, that, that's still absolutely, in my opinion, 99% of everything that you need to do. And there's been lots of studies on this and uh, Jim Collins, good to great, talks about get the right people on the bus and then wonder what seats to, seats to put them in. Uh, other people say hire for attitude, train for skills. Uh, same rules apply, and, and that goes back well before I even thought about recruitment. Um, in, in the world of, of finding candidates, um, yeah, that's changed massively. Um, you know, when I first started a recruitment business, we used to spend half a day preparing a print advertisement that went into a magazine or a national newspaper. You could only um, advertise that job once a month or once a week. We used to advertise in some you know, specific monthly engineering magazines or the Daily Telegraph on a Thursday, I seem to recall, repeated on a Sunday. And it was a very limited time frame and a very limited market that you felt you were able to access. Um, now you've got the internet, you've got LinkedIn, you've got job boards, you've got your own database that you can build up a lot quicker than we did over those years. But I would say that the ultimate problem is still the same, which is finding the right person. And I very often say that, you know, it's still like finding a needle in a haystack. It's just that the haystack has just got a lot bigger. One of the things that is constantly coming up over the last six months is this aspect around the great resignation about, you know, the impact that COVID uh, and the world's issues. I, I personally think that it was beginning to kind of get that way over the last three to five years anyway, with a lot of kind of uh, millennials coming through and, and understanding what they wanted and the kind of the work force and the needs and the requirements changing. I'd love to get your views and opinions on what you've, what you've been seeing over this period. I think that COVID accelerated 
the departure from the employment market, the labour market, of a lot of people that might still be in it. We've got a, an ageing workforce, and you know that's that's a problem that has been coming down the tracks for a long time. Um, you know the demographics of you know, Western society. It's not just the UK. It's not just New Zealand. It's America. It's uh, you know Europe. Um, I think COVID probably made people sit back and think, what's important to them? Um, do they do they need to be on this treadmill that they were on? You know, they were enforced to sort of sit at home, whether that was to work or to just be told to sit at home and be paid to be sat at home uh, for a period of time. I think people realised that they didn't need the amount of money in their lives that they might have done for some of the trappings that they thought they needed that they realised they didn't. I think a lot of people have realised that they've got uh, a lot of wealth in their property because the property market has continued to grow and accelerate even post-Covid. So they've got money to do things with that they don't have to earn. And so we've seen a big exodus of like 50 to 55-year-olds who've brought forward their retirement plans. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of skill that's left the market. That's a lot of uh, a lot of labour that's left the market. Um, I think there is still surrounding security uh, a, a reason why people won't resign, why they should stay where they are. Because if you've got tenure and you're not unhappy in your job, um, maybe it would be foolhardy to leave that role. So I see the opposite in some cases to a great resignation. I see, I see a lot of demand for people to resign and take a different job. But I also notice that a lot of people will stay where they are if they can be given a good incentive to remain. And normally you have to resign to be recognised so, or, or even noticed in some cases. So counter offers seem to be uh, more popular to accept than an alternative offer because better the devil you know I've got tenure I've suddenly been recognised my boss that was ignoring me is now is there a need and you know so if those people that are listening to this are employed uh, is it kind of worth taking the risk and going to your employer and saying hey uh, I'm I've been offered something somewhere else do you want to match it I mean is that is that a strategy that's worth considering no, I would <laughs> heartily advise against doing that. <laughs> Not least because they might say, um, that was nice knowing you then, good luck. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a high-risk strategy there, Adam. And, and don't look for yeah. a job to get a pay rise where you are. I mean, you've got to look for the right reasons. Um, what we are finding is uh, personal development is one of the main reasons why someone okay. will either stay or leave a job. Um, money is important of course you don't want to go and earn less than you're currently earning um, but I think people look for personal development and advancement more than they would potentially a quick buck uh, because that quick buck as we've just said could come at a risk of security um, the only other thing that I would just say is that the, the, the room is split on whether more people want to now work from home now they've had a taste of it than, than work from a single mm -hmm. site or from premises ironically you mentioned millennials well i mean i'm going back pre-millennial uh, sorry post-millennials should i say um younger people that are in the job and labor market now uh, they tend to want to turn up somewhere it's how they build their networks internally and externally with with their uh, for their career and they want to be shown how to do things and it's very difficult to show somebody something on an ad hoc basis when they're sat in another in another building on zoom so the room is split and i i think older employees let's say or more established employees who have a good network, a good skills base that can get on with their job regardless, who probably found the commute that they were doing mm -hmm. and in position as it was. I could do this from anywhere, it's just that they need to see me doing it. I think those people have really taken to the work from home thing, uh, but, but then newer, less established people into the job market or into a particular job probably need that greater level of interaction. So 
you've got to decide who you've got and where you're going as a business as to what model or maybe a mix so of two. So for me, this provide. is a really interesting one because my observation is, uh, you know, and there's a couple of people that instantly come to mind who were traditional manufacturing organisations who were very, very anti this aspect of work from home. Uh, the whole COVID situation has accelerated the need and desire. They were left with no choice. Um, but actually, the change of internal culture as to what they're now accepting, I believe in some cases has probably saved their business uh, where if they'd have stayed in the old mentality five to ten years' time, they were going to really struggle to recruit because the the demand of the market would have been, well, I don't need to be in the office. I want to work from home. I, 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 you know, in a... In a typical market where, um, and this is my judgment here, where there was this piece, especially within manufacturing, where we need to physically see people in the office to make sure they're, inverted commas, doing the work, um, even though they may well be checking you know, uh, anything they want whilst they were sat at their desk. What, what have you observed in the conversations and the meetings that you've had over the last couple of years as to how the change has not, you know, first and foremost was forced upon them, but now how they're navigating that change from towards a, maybe a hybrid model as they kind of move out of this? I, I think that you've got, um, you, you've got a potential ticking time bomb where people are very happy with who they already know and what they already know but there is a level of isolation from too much homeworking. And so I believe, and you mentioned a manufacturing company, it's very difficult for a manu- an employee of a manufacturing company to not have to spend some time engaging with the manufacturing process. So I don't know what kind of roles you might have in mind, but I would say everybody involved in some form of manufacturing business at some time has got to engage with the manufacturing process and there are people in those businesses that purely cannot work from home because the manufacturing process requires them to be in a factory but um, I think it's important that there is an opportunity to work from home if you can be trusted to and the best way to ensure that you've got people delivering what you want no matter where from is if you're working on an outcome basis rather than an input basis so I think the former business model was all about are we measuring people's input i.e. what time did they turn up how long were they sat at their desk as opposed to what did they achieve whilst they were there um so you 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 mentioned something I was going to bring on later this aspect of trust uh is trust earned or is it given um and from an employer's perspective, how and what needs to be done to to create and monitor that on a continual basis? I'm only speaking personally. I feel I give everybody the level of trust that I would wish to be afforded myself. Um, So I always say trust is there to be lost, not earned. You get trust to start with. If, however, you abuse that level of trust, then that level of trust can only go one way, which is down. And, you know, ultimately, if I find someone that I employ can't be trusted, I can't employ them. But I give trust on day one. Um, Just want to go back to this, uh, the aspect of the the current... Uh, situation the marketplace etc where do you see the big opportunities are for first and foremost employers but then also employees I think employers need to look beyond people to solve their problems I think particularly in the UK we've thrown people at problems rather than really thinking about how to do it smarter or look at what new technologies we could invest in. And again, I'm going to speak personally, but I am seeing a similar trend within our marketplace, as in our customers' marketplace. We've we've invested what would have been salaries into new technologies. And we've, we've put a lot of money into new software platforms, artificial intelligence, 
you still need people to run that software, but you need a different kind of person. And perhaps that leads me on to the second part of your question. The opportunity for an employee now is it's all about digitization. So no matter what sphere of industry you might be considering, you've got to look at where is the trend of digitization in that industry, because that's the future job that you're going to have, even if it doesn't exist today. I'll give you a quick for instance. We're talking about manufacturing. Um, it, I remember 25 years ago looking at a, a prototype, rapid prototype manufacturing business that was um, doing additive manufacturing. So for those listeners that aren't in manufacturing, former ways of making something were subtractive, i.e. you got a piece of metal and you cut away the bits you didn't want until you were left with the bit you did. Now what we do is we, we grow a product by adding layers of powder and heating it through um, additive manufacturing techniques. Now that was around 25 years ago. It's highly digitized. We, we talk about the opportunity one day where we'll probably be able to design something on our own handheld device, press a button and have it made in the room next to us or on a machine next to us like we can now all have a printer that prints something out for us so you know that's probably in manufacturing where that technology is going but every industry is going down that route and i think you're going to have a few really key experts that really know what they're doing that drive the technology and then technology itself is what's going to do do you see that there's a gap in the market then where that you mentioned about that aspect of digitization within that vertical space. Are you seeing that uh, there is a gap? And if you can find somebody that knows and understands how to uh, leverage and use technology to increase the efficiency and productivity within an organization, that those people are in high demand? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think any savvy business owner or, or manager of a, of a business unit should be looking to acquire talent that can take them to the next step in either how something is made or what that product is that you are producing that will have a benefit to other people in that realm. The difficulty I think is um, being too, too quick with clever ideas. I remember somebody once having a brilliant idea for letting people know job alerts that were coming through on um, on text, and he was he was basically 15 years too too quick to market with the idea. It fell on its face. But the concept of being able to search and apply for a job at a bus stop on your mobile phone was which what we all do is what people do every day, whether they're catching the bus or not, sat in traffic. You know, you can search for a job and get a job over the phone. Over on your handheld device. Now, that was a that was revolutionary 15 years ago, and it was almost too soon. Kind of touching on what I wanted to to ask you is around. So, as a as a business owner, uh, do you have a process or a set of questions that you ask yourself whether with regards to looking at new uh, automation, AI, software, etc. Um, and if you're happy, I'd love to to hear some of the some of the general or even specific technologies that you've found that you've used, either qualified in or tried something and actually realised this isn't actually what we need and kind of let go of it. Well, we we have trialled a lot of different types of AI before we settled on what we've picked on, um, and. There are greater or lesser degrees of, you know, utility, but uh, and it depends on your application. Um, but I think what surprised me the most was the amount of technology that was actually out there. And so, you know, people talk about AI, and it seems to be something that's very futuristic, that's not for us yet. But but I was quite surprised at how advanced a lot of software was, and what you could buy off the shelf for. It's not cheap, but it's not, you know, for a small business like ours, it's still um, not out of reach. I think you've got to know what you want it to do, um, or you've you've got to test lots of things to decide, because you almost don't know what you want 
that you've never seen before. But when you do see things, you can think, well, that would be really useful. How could we then apply it? So you're working backwards. How could we apply that to our business so that it would streamline or advance a lot of what we already do? Um, so the first part of the question is, yeah, um, you should be looking at technology all the time. I think the first part of the question I would just answer is, the game has changed, and I remember I think it was um, I think it was Bill Gates once said that you know this is the age of the nerd or something like that. I, th I think it's becoming increasingly the age of the nerd, and you know we are looking now for people that can analyse data or find ways in which software can analyse data as being far more useful than in what traditionally in our business was a, a very sales-driven type business where you seem to have to have the gift of the gab if you were going to um, succeed. And actually, it's, it's the gift of being able to process large quantities of big data down to a very personal level in as short a time possible. I think that is where every business is going to benefit from. And for you, for you specifically, having that data... What does that allow you to do or not do? Well, it allows us to service our customers. I mean, it allows us to be able to go to, as I said earlier, um, you know, it's still like finding a needle in a haystack, mm. but the haystack just got a lot bigger. When you think whatever your business is, it's all about big data now. But it's great having lots of data, huge data sets. But if, you, if it's too big for you to be able to process, then you, it's still useless. I think the key is how can you take huge data sets and be able to segment it very quickly and find the few things in that data or the few, in our case, people amongst those large sets of data that, that mean something to our customers. Do you feel that there's a challenge for the... Um if there's, a, if there's a board constitution where the majority of, of, of a certain age, that actually in this space that they don't know what they don't know, um, where and how and who would you be recommending that they should be speaking to to kind of grasp an understanding of uh, A, the data, but then the interpretation and, and moving it to make the efficiencies within the organisation? Well, I don't okay. think it's uh, it's an age-based thing because I know... I know um, people that are very senior in their years that are hungry for information they're in, incredibly curious and inquisitive and they never stop looking for the next thing in, in fact I might actually say that perhaps some of the the older people that have been in business longer as long as they've not become complacent recognize that the only thing that you can rely on not changing is change we are in an ever, ever changing world and they've been in that changing environment for a lot longer and so they appreciate that you, nothing stands still for, for long. So I think that it, it's not an age necessarily thing, it's more about um, being curious and inquisitive and I think they're the kind of qualities that you want in the people that work for you. Um, I think you then need a level of intellect so that they're able to understand what it is they're applying that um, curiosity too. Um, so any specific tools either general or um, specific within your marketplace that have really really been a game changer for you on this technology AI space? Um, well there are some some specific pieces of software that, that we've bought into but for us it's about um, it's, it's about having a piece of software that thinks slightly wider than a very experienced consultant might. So, you know, we've built those expertise of, um, I'll give you an example. If I was looking for a computer-aided design engineer, and I'm going back to the days that I used to punch those details into a database and hope that it would throw out anybody that had got that on their CV. And then I would have to go, oh, um, people might call it CAD, not just computer-aided design. So I'd put CAD in as a search, and we call these things Boolean searches. And those Boolean searches were only as good as the person that knew the market that they were, that they were working in. So it took 
years to build that industry knowledge. Well, there are now pieces of AI out there that if I was to write CAD, it would give me every permutation of, of a CAD engineer that they might put on their CV. So it would, it would do that job for me. So that broadens the funnel and we're in a market for people where there are too few. So it, it broadens my funnel. Um, it's then still down to me as the consultant or, or one of our consultants to then work out which one of those people that we've brought into the funnel is right for our customer from that cultural point of view that we spoke about earlier. Um, one of the things, Steve, for me is that uh, you and your organisation have outperformed your competitors uh, for years. And, you know, even two weeks ago, I was in conversations with somebody, though, oh, I need to recruit somebody. I was like, okay, there's only, there is literally only one company in the UK that I would ever refer to. Uh, and you know that it's you and the amount of business that we've done over the years and uh, is massive. What What is it, do you believe, with... Um, you and your vision and your mindset that steps you out from your competitors? Well, I think it's down to one thing, it's customer service. And I, we just put ourselves in the shoes of the customer 100%. We, we aren't there to try and fill a job. We are there to try and understand why that job exists in the first place. We are there to try and understand where that business has come from, from where they are going. It's not rocket science. We talk about AI and technology and all these things. Fundamentally, it's about getting to know your customer to such an intimate level that you probably know the best person for them than, than, better than they do. And that happens you know, more frequently than you might imagine. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're very often recommending someone that on paper they wouldn't see. They would say, oh, we're not going to interview that person. And then we say, no, we really think you should because of the following reasons. And when they do, they say, thank you for making us see that person. And, and I had an instance only last week where someone that uh, the CEO of a, of a client said, I don't want to see that, that CV, so we're not interviewing him. And, and we explained why they should. They interviewed this person. They hired him. The HR director recently told me it was the best hire they've made in the last three years, and this person's now been fast-tracked to take over from the CEO. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? So, um, I think that's that's empathy. Empathise with the customer. It doesn't matter whether you're making them a cup of coffee or you know you're producing them a vehicle or whether you're hiring them a person. It's like you've got to empathise with your customer. What is it that they actually want? Mm. And, and I've always found that you and your team's approach has always been um, exactly that. We need to serve what the needs are. Um, and actually, that builds longevity and relationship. And I know a couple of ex examples where um, there's been incumbents that have gone for the role, for the role that you've gone through the process. Um, they've actually been the best candidate. But what it does, what it has done is, is A, the client has got exactly what they need. B, they've gone through the right process, which has been been fair. But third is that actually you, you've built uh, strong core relationships for for longevity. Um, you know, and, and I know that your retention rate is absolutely you know uh, higher than anybody else. You mean you must be outstripping the competition on that? Uh, you know, by 40 percent because the clients that you've got are consistent. The relationships, the referrals that you get because of the great work that you that you do. You know, I suppose the question on that is, have has that always been in place literally since the day you started? Or did, you know, was there kind of a, you know, an enlightenment moment that it was just like, ah, okay, actually this is our differentiation or this is just who we I are? I think it's who we are. It, it goes well beyond even me wanting to start a business. I think it was, it was the way I was brought up by my parents almost. It's sort of... You've, and then I've taken my personal values, which, if you like, were my parental values or my parents' values, and they've they've been channeled or funneled into Euro projects through me. Um, and that is, you know, mm. you, you always do your best, and you know, you you seek to learn and listen, and you know, as cus as a customer, I don't want to I don't want to be transacted. I want to be looked after. I want to be nurtured. I want to be consulted. 
Um, so treat people as you want to be treated yourself. And, and you know, that's, I remember that was almost like my parents' mantra. And so to be able to do that for, for our customers is very rewarding. And yes, we get paid for doing it. And yes, I think made a lot more money quicker if I had just transacted my way into the market, but I probably wouldn't still have a business. And I've probably made a lot more, I'm going to use the word wealth, the money, because it's not just about money. Yep. Um, but I've got a lot more satisfaction out of my business over the last 25 years by operating in that way. I've still got the same mm-hmm. customer that gave me my first check. They st- now I'm, I'm on like the next generation of that family business yeah. now, but we are still working for that company today. And you know, many, many more uh, from there. Right now, let's move on to culture. Um, what does culture mean to you? Well, I suppose textbook answer: it's the way things are done around here. Um, certainly in our business we do have a a very clear understanding of of what we stand for and we have a I've got a very clear understanding of um, you know what we are prepared to tolerate what we reward what we what we don't reward what we're not prepared to what we're not prepared to tolerate so over the years you know we've we've become quite um, well if you're someone that's worked for us in the past um, you're you're going to know exactly what I mean because we mm-hmm. um, we always have the pick of the crop here we have the best people and they stay a long time but but that doesn't mean to say that in the past we've not had a high turnover of people that have come and gone I think the key is to understand exactly what you stand for and not tolerate anything that dilutes it. I think that's the biggest threat to a lot of companies. It's it's that need to put a bum on a seat, and it's not always the right bum. And mm. you can dilute your culture very, very quickly by feeling a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to having to get an order out, so we need more bodies. So you bring in these bodies, and you don't take the time to make sure that the, the heads attached to those bodies of thinking in the right way, have got the right attitudes, those bodies haven't got the right heart to do things for the right reason. Mm. And, you know, we are all about that. Uh, it's all about, you know, heart and soul and, and mind for us. And, and if you're not delivering, um, if you're not delivering that to your customers or to your colleagues who might be internal customers, um, you're not going to survive around here. So either for yourself or for the clients that you're working for, because you mentioned the as- this this aspect of you know culture and getting the right people on the bus and everything like that. How how do you either measure or ask the questions to ascertain whether people are a fit with the culture of a, of an organisation? I think initially I like to find out what they do and don't like about their current employer, um, and and that way you get an understanding of of what life's like. Someone else, I say, what's life like where you work at the moment? How would you describe the culture of where, you, where you're currently employed? What do you like about that culture? What don't you like about that culture? What, what three things would you change if you had the ability to change it? And I'm looking there, not just for their direct answers, but I'm looking for their awareness of the environment that they operate within. And I'm looking for their self-awareness of how they feel they fit into that environment. And it might be that they're very generous and they give you answers that, or responses that um, very quickly enable you to see whether they've um, raised a red flag or, or whether they're a good fit for your business by the answers that they give. Bear in mind, it's a two-way thing. So it's all very well them getting employed, but it's no good for them to leave a job, to join your job, to then find out that you know, you're not the right employer for them. You know, it, we have a duty of carers, employers, and certainly we do as a recruiter uh, and our part in the process to make sure that we de-risk the process for everybody. So let's get that match as good as we possibly can. 
I had a client the other day um, during COVID. They had to let some people go, and I think it's fair to say that some of the people that left, they weren't sorry to see leave. And they're so busy now, they are rehiring those very same people. Now, that might fulfill a very immediate need that this person knows the processes, they know the the business, they probably know the customer, whatever it is. But long term, I think they also recognise that that's a bad decision because they haven't had the opportunity to move on. Whether as a business or that individual. So, if you were there, if you were on the board with that organisation, what would you be advising? Well, I think they're in a very difficult position, Adam. To be to be candid with you, I think with the skill shortages, it is. Mm. So it's all very well us talking about culture, it's, but if, if you can't afford not to have somebody doing that job, you might have to make a compromise. Yeah. Um, my advice to that company was actually to see whether they could take these people on a temporary contract. And, and I suppose that's the difficult thing is that, you know, you are caught in, in some ways because if you if culture is important for you and you want to lead on it, but there isn't the people there, how then do you get the best available people? Um, you know, you talk about the need in the in the haystacks. How, what, what are the what are the strategies? What are the conversations? What are the decisions that the leaders within organisations need to make to ensure that they are getting as sharp a needles as they possibly can within their organisation, wherever possible. I think the answer to that is all the best employers that, when it comes to recruiting and and so let's let's call them talent acquire acquirers of talent. All the best acquirers of talent that I work with have one thing in common, and they, that is they don't treat recruitment as a one-off event. They are constantly looking at who is available in the marketplace. They have a very clear understanding of where they're going as a business. They have a very clear understanding of what they, um, what they want in terms of values, maybe technologies and so forth. And they are constantly on the lookout for those people. And, and when they meet them, and okay, it's not been easy to do that lately with COVID restrictions worldwide, um, but I think up to then, um, their success was based on being able to share their vision and values and say to the people that, that they like the look of, now I've shared that with you, who do you know that you think might be interested in joining our organization? Uh, and it's fu- so funny because I remember you and I having this conversation in our very, very, I think it was probably one of the second or third conversations. I remember distinctly about this aspect that an organization is always looking mm. to hire. And you, you are constantly, uh, especially the leaders within an organization, you are always on the lookout. And sometimes the most important thing is that you hire the right person, which potentially is at the wrong time for the organization. But you can't afford to let them go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got one customer that that does exactly what we've just described. He's, he is a very well networked and very well regarded man within his industry, and so he gets to meet people all the time that want to talk to him. And at the same time, he's looking to see whether they or someone they know might well be their next star employee. Now, he doesn't hire everybody that he likes, but what he does is he says, um, let's get together and have a a coffee or, you know, that person that you recommend, let let me meet them or speak to them on the telephone. He puts time in his diary to be able to do that. And then he says, look, we haven't got anything for you right now, but if I did have an opportunity, would you be interested in talking to us further? And so what he's doing is he's building a bench. And... They do say that, uh, is, it, is it good luck is where um, preparation meets opportunity. So when they get an opportunity, maybe it's to bid for a job or, or maybe it's to um, you know, take on a piece of work or a contract, they might have previously had to let that opportunity go by because they don't have the resources or the expertise to, to handle it. In this case, what they do is, well, before we let the opportunity go by, Let's just see whether there's anyone that we've met recently that we think would be able to 
turn that opportunity into a reality. They called the people in that they've met, that they've had a chat with and said, look, you know, it's been a couple of months, but we might have something for you now. This is what it could look like. Do you want to talk to us? And before you know it, they've got a brand new business unit opening up because they've married their preparation with opportunity. Scouting report. Yeah. I mean, in theory, it's what, you know, from a sporting analogy perspective, it's what they're, what they're doing all the time is that they're checking on the talent that's available. Um, they're, un- they're meeting and they're understanding. They're seeing if there's a the cultural fit. They're then analysing and assessing, probably using AI, um, around, you know, have they got the, the technical, the speed, you know, the endurance that we need for our game plan and how we're moving forward. Uh, and and it's, it's always fascinated me in the fact that when you look at organisations that where they spend so much time on other aspects from a strategic planning perspective, that you know the foresight of people planning um, is not something that you know. I mean, you talk about sitting around the board table, you know, the health and risk register. You know, we have to do it because there's a legal compliance perspective, and a lot of people go, "Oh, we've got to do that," but it's, there's a level of importance. Why is it that organisations are not spending more time and energy at a senior board level thinking about the people management side? I don't know, and I almost disagree. Uh, Because I think in the time... Let's go back to the very first question you asked me. And and, you you said, what's changed? I'll tell you what I think has changed. The recognition of importance of um, the, the... human capital element of a business and I think human resource directors HRDs now have a a far louder voice at the boardroom table than they ever used to and Mm -hmm. yeah I think you're right it used to be very much about um, compliance and going through grievance procedures or redundancy programs or hiring programs whatever it is and it was very um I think it was always very transactional and it was always very, um, it was a necessary evil. I'm going back 25 years and even back then there were some really forward thinking businesses. Uh, Let's take Richard Branson for an example that, you know, always uh, look how successful he's been in that time. Um, But um, I think now that most businesses that don't have a progressive outlook towards people management, human capital, human resources, call it what you will, people in their business mm-hmm. uh, are probably going to be the ones that aren't with us in the next 25 years. Um, so I, a little birdie told me, or maybe a little bit of my research, that you're now looking and working with teams uh, as well as kind of the recruitment space, you're now looking at uh, empowering and engaging and, and team building exercises I personally would love to hear about that because I sense it's a new venture that you've gone into. Well, your your um, your spies are obviously um, doing a good job for you, Adam, because it's not particularly well documented or, or broadcast. But um, one of the things that I've been very privileged and, and grateful to um, find myself doing, uh, and it makes me sound far grander than it actually is, is I got the opportunity to uh, learn to play polo last year. Um, I decided learning to ride a horse was something I'd love to do, so I had some riding lessons. And then um, bumped into someone that um, was able to give me some polo lessons, and it kind of snowballed. And it's become an incredible passion for me. And um, just horse riding generally, but polo particularly, is uh, is something that I've, I've fallen in love with. And one of the things that I was very quick to recognise is how you can bring lots of different people together from actually very different backgrounds. It's not such an elite sport that people might think it is. Um, and in fact, you know, some of the people I know at a very high standard um, come from very humble beginnings and basically um, live on a shoestring in order to be able to enjoy this sport to the extent they do. Um, but you can bring people together from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different levels of education, expertise, occupation, and get them performing incredibly well as a team um, through the passion of what they do, through the um, unique influence of 
the animals that you know the, the ponies that you you're involved with and it just made me think yeah you know this is a great way of bringing people together and maybe having a team building exercise and I think polo like a lot of sports which is why business does tend to enjoy listening to um, sports success stories as to how they could apply those lessons to to, to their own success in, in the commercial world um, but I think polo is a great analogy for business and it's a great analogy for mm-hmm. for team building and it's great fun and let me tell you horses are a great leveller so you know it's probably a little bit different to other sports where a, a, if you put me on a football team with a load of people that can play football really well um, I'm going to be rubbish but you put a, quite a good rider on a horse that's not particularly enthusiastic and it, it'll... Um, It'll either have have them off or it'll show them up. And that horses, no matter how good you are, are a great leveller. So um, Mm. we've basically started a a business whereby you can sign up, uh, bring your team of people, uh, have a great fun day out, learn to play polo, learn a few things about one another that you might not know in terms of um, how you operate as a team, and and go away with, I think, um, a, a, a legendary memory because it's something that you will always talk about in the future when you're um, when you're having a, a, a team briefing or maybe in a difficult situation, you know you've broken those barriers down a little bit. So um, thank you for allowing me to. Um, no, no. Well, look, I, I wish you uh, every success with that, and um, uh, hopefully, as and when I manage to get back to the UK, I would love to come and uh, come and experience it. Especially for me, this this year, uh, my word for the year is exploration. So uh, um, whether I get back to the UK this year, who knows? We'll see. Um, so I just want to finish um, on, because uh, it ties quite nicely into this. You've always, for as long as I've known you, you've invested in yourself from a, a personal and business development perspective. Um, but also you've extended that through to, to the team as well. And it, it doesn't surprise me. In fact, it fills my heart with joy knowing that with everything that you know and learn for yourself, uh, from that process, although though that period, but also with now your love of uh, love, love of horses and polos that you're bringing that together. So uh, I'm, I'm, I, I feel a, a sense of joy knowing that you're going to do that because I know the value that you're going to deliver to others, but also what that's going to mean for you. I'd love for you to just share with the listeners um, wh- what you've learned through your journey uh, in the different environments and the different things that you've engaged with. I think for every you, situation's got a team. lesson. And um, I love putting my... I, I'm just like this freak of nature that loves change, that loves putting myself in, in difficult situations to see whether I've got what it takes to come through. I, I, I'm most uncomfortable when I'm comfortable. Now, that doesn't go for everybody, but I think there's a little bit of something in everybody that just makes them want to be that bit more than they already are and and all I try and do is is offer a, an insight into you could do this if I can do it and I am a uncoordinated not particularly strong not particularly bright or clever person and never have been or certainly never seen myself in any of those ways yet I've you know done a lot of mountaineering and I've I just like a challenge, you know. I'll, I'll, I did a marathon. I'm never going to win a race with with that one. I can tell you, but you know, it's like I just like putting myself in situations of discomfort to see whether I can actually achieve it or not. Um, and I think you learn a lot about yourself when you do those kinds of things. And then that can help you recognise in others maybe a, an untapped potential or a fear that you can help them overcome. Hmm. Um, what did you get from? or what have you got over the years from being involved in having coaching but then also being involved in kind of mastermind groups I think I heard somebody once say that you know you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with and and I'm a great believer in that Um, I took a lot of I I was able to sort of short circuit a lot of really good experience by talking to people about what they'd done and how they'd done it I was able to gain a lot of reassurance from people about my lonely decisions and that second guessing that you do with yourself when you're on your own 
you know, am I making the right choice here or not? What if, what if? It's so nice to be able to bounce that off someone you respect and have them come back and go, good decision, maybe you should consider this as well. Um, I think the other thing is when you get a group of like-minded, good people together that are all about self-development, actually they're not just about their own self-development, they're about your development as well and you'll never, you'll never find anyone that isn't generous in one of those environments that doesn't want to give you the benefit of their experience and see you thrive and succeed. Uh, last question. What does frank and fearless mean to you? Living life on your own terms. Having the courage to be able to stand up for what you know in your heart is genuinely what you want to either have, be or do. Awesome. Um, Steve, where can people find you? Uh, right now, seven o'clock, eight o'clock now in my office in Barnum Hill, Colville, Leicestershire. <laughs> I'm going home for my dinner now, however. So um, you can find Euro Projects on uh, europrojects.co.uk on the internet. I'm on LinkedIn, but there are a lot of Stephen Browns around. It's not an unusual name. Um, you can give me a, a drop me an email, maybe s.brown at europrojects.co.uk or through you, Adam. My, Fantastic. Uh, my agent now. Oh. <laughs> my <laughs> a stealth agent. Uh, Steve, this has been um, uh, wonderful in all my dealings with you, just this uh, enigmatic uh, pushing things towards the edge, um, both for yourself but uh, your team, but also with the with the people that you work with. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm proud and honoured to, uh, to have worked with you so closely over the years uh, and to also um, count you as a, a, as a friend. I am Adam Harris. I am the uh, founder and curator of uh, Frank and Fearless. Till the next time, uh, be safe. And remember, what do you need to do this week to become a little bit more Frank and Fearless? Bye for now.